This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine back to another summer heatwave edition of Wireless Books brought to you from the lovely little radio station that is Otago Access Radio on behalf of and for all the punters at the Athenaeum. Well, and anybody who wants to um, to listen in, um, Heidi, hi. And Heidi, ho. Mm. Now, gosh... You've had a lot of reading over the Christmas break, but you've forgotten it all. You t- you told me That's so right. so long ago, and I got totally engrossed in David Sedaris. I took out his um, his published diaries from the public library and read them, and I thought, oh, I've, I've read a few things of his. He um, publishes um, he writes articles and he publishes in the, a lot of them in the New Yorker, so I have read them and I've got one of his books. But anyway, I wasn't a real David Sadakis um, jag, and I just want to tell you one little story about him. Um, he's, he's thought of as being a New Yorker, but he, he his family moved to Raleigh in North Carolina when he was ooh, about five-ish or so, or maybe a bit older, maybe nine, and... Shortly after they moved, his parents were out having a meal together and it was announced in the restaurant that um, Martin, um, Martin Luther, King. <laughs> Luther King Jr. had been assassinated and they were the only two people who didn't burst into spontaneous applause. Oh, how hideous. Well, he just, just he says, so they just knew the sort of place they had come oh. to. It was just so strange for them as north. So they were northerners suddenly in the south, and it was just a lot of cultural shock. Ugh, yeah. Yeah, just um, amazing, really. And it, But that was, what, 1967 or was it 69? Um, so that's a long, long time ago. And a lot of people are, see things differently now. Mm. Now, now I've cheered you up. Um, let me give you some happy reading. It's the X Woman by. Oh, the X Woman! <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah, now we're talking. I know what you like, Beth. Um, Harkin Hesser, and of course it's a Scandi one. Um, he's. It says on the front he's the godfather of Swedish crime. Oh. Mm. So we start off in Sweden in uh, 2012 and our hero, he's just, he's had a bereavement. His wife has died unexpectedly and he's just totally, well, he's bereft and he's had a bit of time off and he's returned and his superior has suggested that he takes on a cold case just to ease him back slowly into things so he can take a a case that's a no-pressure case and just um, so to ease him back into things. And it's a case about, um, he's called a shy electrician and Arnold and five years ago he disappeared from the face of the earth and the only thing that was left behind was his blue moped which was found 
in the middle of a nearby swamp, which is weird because, first of all, it's very difficult to take a, something that deep into a swamp. It's not an easy thing. You're not just standing on a bridge and throwing it in. You've got to sort of wade in. and So that's a weird thing. And if you've gone to all the trouble of making a body disappear completely, why leave the the moped? I mean, it was found, so it wasn't that well concealed. But um, the plot thickens because Arnold was actually um, living with a woman who had been imprisoned for... Um, for killing her abusive first husband and disemboweling his body with an axe. So naturally the police all think, well, it has to be her. (laughs) Everybody thinks, oh, it has to be her. But they just couldn't prove anything. There was nothing they could hang it on. So the case went cold, and so he's been asked to re-examine it. And so he, he he starts back, and... To start with, he's just really going through the motions, but the more he looks into it, the more things don't seem quite right. And it just, the woman who's this notorious ex-murderer has disappeared, so he's got to track her down. I mean, if, you, if you'd if you been in prison for, for axing your first husband for death then, to death and your second partner disappears, I think you would try and make yourself scarce. Yes, I think that would seem very reasonable. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. But um, he does track her down and when he does meet her, she she just doesn't seem the type. It's just, And so everywhere he turns, all his preconceptions are overturned. So anyway, it's, um, it's one of those books. So you can, I think you might enjoy that. Lovely. Now, the other book I've got here is the latest John Grisham, and it's called The Boy, Boys from Biloxi. Oh, is it Biloxi? Yeah. Yep, Biloxi. Now, for whatever reason, I've all, I've heard the name Biloxi before, and I always thought it was sort of near New York or something, but it's not. It's down on the Gulf. Um, so it's a fishing community, and... Is settled by a lot of migrants from places like Croatia, and um, so they're all Catholics and they're hardworking people. And they come and they people that used to fish in the Adriatic, they come to America and they make their way to the Gulf of Mexico, and they're on Biloxi and they there's great seafood down there. So it becomes a seafood um, place. Also has a very nice climate, so it also becomes a bit of a vacation spot. And then when Pro- prohibition comes in. They just ignore it, <laughs> and so they don't even they don't even bother with speakeasies. They just they just keep on as mm. before, and and nobody bothers to to close any of it down because and so it becomes a a, a real great vacation spot because people come to Biloxi to you know because you can drink easy you have easy booze, and then of course that brings in gambling, and that brings in prostitution. And so if you want to, you can have a, a fantastic time, and then. The um, army, in its wisdom, builds um, a military training camp just outside. So, of course, all the soldiers can't believe their luck. So they're all about to be shipped off to the war. And so, of course, they they go into town and and drink up large and gamble and meet with fast women and um, have a great time. And so it's it's a real den of um, thieves, really. But it's kind of small time. 
until after the war, um, a group calling themselves um, the Miami Mafia Movement. They're not really linked to the mafia, and the FBI is sort of tracking them, but they're very hard to to keep hold of. So it's sort of this atmosphere of if you want to if you want to be really bad, you can be really bad, and if you want to ignore it, it's very easy to ignore it. You just don't go down to the strip, and so it sort of starts with two boys who are away and camp together and they, they become great friends but one of them his father becomes a lawyer and then he becomes a crusading um, prosecuting lawyer um, and he tr- he's trying to clean up the place and the other boy's father is heavily involved in, in the in the wrongins. he's part of a crime family really and and they they start off as friends, and they stay friends for a very long time. But their paths um, break, and then something happens that one of them does something terrible, and it ends up in. A, well, of course, it's a John Grisham, so they all end up in court. And um, I've just read a little bit of it, but uh, I actually quite enjoyed it. I it's love not really John Grisham. yeah, it's not my usual type of thing, but he is such a great writer. Oh yeah, I haven't read anything of his for a long time. Years. Oh, well, there you go. Now, this is the book that was on a lot of um, best of lists last year. And I I read them and I thought, oh, I really want that. And so I wrote it down in my little notebook. And when I went to go buy books, um, November, December, I couldn't find it. But um, I was in the UBS and there it was. It's called We All Want Impossible Things. And it's by Catherine Newman. And... I think this is her first adult n- novel. She's written um, children's books until then, and and she writes um, magazine articles. And it's kind of, it's a fiction, but it's sort of based on an experience that she had herself. It's about um, two best friends, Eddie and Ash, and Eddie and Ash have been friends for forty plus years, and they're very entwined in each other's lives. And Eddie has cancer, and she's. She's actually come to the end of the road and it starts with um, the doctors or the social worker explaining um, to Ash and Edie's husband that um, Edie needs to go to hospice. There's nothing more that they can do for her. And so, of course, this is America, So, and I think they're in New York, and, and Edie's husband tries looking for, for hospices and there's waiting lists and he can't get in. And Ash lives... Um, up in the countryside and she says well there's a hospice just around the corner from me sort of thing so how about Edie comes up and goes to the hospice where where I am which is kind of a, a weird thing to offer and Edie Edie has a son who is seven and he's already traumatised by it, I mean it's horrific and they decide it might actually be better that he just says goodbye to his mother now while she's still still um, conscious and can still interact with him and the father decides well actually he probably better stay with the son and so Edie and Ash go back to the hospice closest to where Ash is. Now Ash has just been divorced and she her two daughters are older and they're at college so she has, she has the freedom to devote herself to Edie's last days and this Scenario happened to Catherine. She actually um, stayed with her, her best friend when she died of cancer, and so, and Catherine also volunteers at a hospice. She cooks the lunch for them every Monday, 
So she's kept as part of the hospice world. And it's really, yeah, people have just really adored it. And, yeah, it's the kind of thing that it's not for everybody. It has a picture at the front of it of, um, is it Ikebano or something like that, the Japanese um, thing of, of putting things together, broken things together with with gold and um, making something that was broken into something beautiful again. And that's kind of the um, the premise, I think. And the last one I've got is Clara and the Sun by Katsu Isiguru, who is um, fam- most famous for Remains of the Day, I think. Um, but he's been writing for a long time, and he's actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And this is um, sort of science fiction-y. It's the main character, Clara, is um, a robot, and she is powered by sunshine. And so she has a consciousness, and her duty is to be a companion to a child um, and to help them integrate and um, become for troubled children and also children who are ill and the child that she ends up with is actually has an illness and she helps this child and she sort of monitors her and Clara sort of evolves her own sort of religion in that because she is powered by solar power she worships the sun and um, is always very conscious about the sun and thinks that, and she also believes that the sun nurtures the humans in her life the way that nurtures nurtures her. So it's actually a, quite a very interesting book. Yeah, she was sort of looking at me like you, but it, it's, it's fascinating. This is um, this, this robot who is telling her story, and um, who she uh, she doesn't understand as much as she thinks she does, and that's sort of. Yeah. Uh, it does sound wonderful, and it will also be beautifully written. Look, let's t- let's do a sting. Yes. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. I actually just like playing that sting because of Jeff's beautiful voice. Yes, and it's actually. nice nice hearing him spell out how to spell Athenaeum. It's always handy. <laughs> now, as well as reading a lot of David Zadaris, I also got out a book called The Mysteries of History by Graham Donald. And he's sort of going into things that we all think we know about history, which actually are just myths or made up. And a lot of... So I'm going to start with um, Rasputin. Now, you know how Rasputin died, do you? Oh, was he poisoned? Well, did he jump off the castle walls? Did he <clears throat> drown in his bed? Did he? No, he was vomit on his words. He it was sort of he was as if he was indestructible. He apparently the story that everybody seemed most people know is that he first he was invited to to the house of um, a, a, a prince in the Russian nobility and. And the bait was that this prince had a beautiful wife and Rasputin was a ladies' man. So he arrived and he was offered um, little petite petit fours and, and they were poisoned, so he ate them and they had no effect on him. And then they, 
they stabbed him and they they shot him and none of it had any effect and they stabbed they stabbed him and finally they according to the official thing is that they rolled him in a carpet and they took him and threw him in the river and finally he drowned so they tried about five different oh, assassinations I've got two out of them right yeah. yeah well so it was this this sort of thing that he was this indestructible man but the truth is actually quite different and I just want to go back to um, the Tsar and Tsarina um, Nicholas II and Alexander they were they weren't the brightest and they were obsessed with this idea of holy men or lunatics who could sprout the word of God and they thought that um, crazy people might have the tr- God's word inside mm-hmm. them so they like apparently Harry Houdini performed at um, at the court and Nicholas went into raptures and, uh, and asked that he stay and he claimed that he was genuine and Houdini actually insisted that it was all smoke and mirrors and he tried he made a quick beeline to the door because he thought he this, this guy's crazy and he's going to lock me mm. he's going to lock me here and keep me so he didn't want that so two years later Rasputin turned up with um, raving um, that he you know, had the word of God and he seemed to be able to help the the, the son who had um, hemophilia and lots of people speculated that he um, he used hypnosis but um, Graham Donald says that it's probably more the fact that he kept the doctors away because the doctors used to um, put leeches on the poor child and give him aspirin which is the new miracle drug but aspirin thins the blood which mm. is exactly the wrong thing yeah. for a hemophiliac so just by keeping the doctors away he probably did more good than anything else so the the Tsar and the Tsarina became totally under his thrall and he encouraged their drug use uh. this, this gets more and more weird um Alexander was hopelessly addicted to barbiturates, cocaine and morphine, while Nicholas was endlessly puffing on marijuana joints laced with psychedelic um, herbs. Now, this sounds crazy, but you have to remember, during the First World War, you used to be able to pop into Harrods and get um, a care kit for the boys at the front, which would include cocaine and heroin so that to keep their nerves strong in the trenches. So... People were popping drugs much more than we realise. <laughs> so your great-grandparents were really up to a lot more than they let on. So anyway, you had two drug-addicted people running a war and they were following Rasputin's advice. And he was trying, he wanted to get Russia out of the war and he was trying to encourage them to negotiate with the Germans. And the British got word of this and they didn't want this, so... The prince who had invited Rasputin along for a tete-a-tete with his wife was actually heavily involved with the British Secret Service. And so Captain Oswald Reiner of the SIS was was ordered to establish contact with his one-time lover, Prince Felix, who was the guy who, who took the credit for killing Rasputin. And he was, you know... Felix, Prince Felix was also a flamboyant transvestite, so it's, yeah, it's great stuff, isn't it? So anyway, they they invited Rasputin over and they tried their first thing and it didn't really work. But Oswell took up his 
his um, service revolver and shot Rasputin in the head and killed him instantly and all the rest was made up because of course Prince Felix didn't want people to know that he'd actually enlisted the help of the British SIS because that was pretty unpatriotic. And so he and he also wanted all the glory for himself. And of course the British didn't really want it to be let out that they were interfering to that extent. So this fascinating. It, it's just <laughs> it, the the mind just boggles and it boggles again and then it boggles again. So this, this book is full of um, stories like this. Um, for example, um, Crippen, the famous murderer. What, mm. Dr. Crippen. Dr. Crippen. Well, and he was, they found a body in his basement, right? Yeah. Well, apparently, long after um, he'd been um, executed for his fiendish crime of, of murdering his wife, they tested um, the torso and it's a male. Well, where's his wife? Exactly. Now, apparently, somebody sent a taunting letter to him while he was in prison waiting trial, claiming to be Clara and saying that she was having a high time and she wasn't going to come back and and, and let him off the hook. Now, that could be just um, a, f- a fake letter or it could be true. So, the, and they've re- the they think that the guy that was the pathologist um, over-egged the evidence and also the police probably um, added, um, like, the, the bouter from her pyjamas was found with a torso, supposedly, and he thinks it was probably planted. So sort of a bit of police argy-bargy and the pathologist um, just... Because the pathologist actually became notorious and he, he was operating up until the Second World War and finally they had to get rid of him because he was just so biased and if he took a dislike to the defendant he just um, he would make things up mm. it's just totally corrupt but I, oh, where's the wife? nobody knows I mean I, did he kill her? and hide the body elsewhere and was shocked when he was on the ship and well, arrested? Who, who knows? I mean, the whole thing, I mean, it's such a, a little, you know, let's face it, it's a little murder. He killed one person, supposedly. But he became so infamous because when I first heard of Crippen, I thought, mm-hmm. gosh, how many people has he killed? Mm. But it was, and it was... It was all due to the fact that they used the the wireless telegraph, yeah. and and it was all being relayed back to the papers. So the papers were were publishing all all the doings of the of the murderer and his and his girlfriend, who was dressed up as as his son, which is all, all salacious detail. So he became notorious mm. not for his crime, but sort of things surrounding it. And um, the other one is Joan of Arc. Oh, don't you dare be ruining Joan of Arc for me. <laughs> okay, let's go to Robin Hood then. Oh, no, go back to Joan. <laughs> Joan of Arc, apparently they kind of made it all up. Um, Napoleon wanted a, a heroine for France and they all the previous people in the French Revolution were, were a bit too gory, so they went back to the, the Maid of Orleans. But she wasn't She wasn't even French. She... Um, because she lived, she was born in a duchy that wasn't part of France at the time, and her family were actually quite anti-French. <laughs> so anyway, she and did she do the things she she did? Who knows? Lead an army of men at fourteen to victory. Well, there's been books written on her. There's been historical accounts. Who's, but who's the this fir- Graham D to first come along? Histor- and historical accounts were made in the 19th century, and she was from the 13th century. So there's a bit of a gap there, and. 
It's a sort of thing. I mean, there were other women who led armies, so women putting on armour and leading mm. armies wasn't that yeah, amazing. No. And the other thing, it wasn't the French, it wasn't the English who burnt her at the stake. If anybody burnt her at the stake, it was the French with their um, the, the, the French Inquisition because she was because apparently there's a, a passage in the Bible which claims that you're not supposed to women aren't supposed to wear men's clothing. Yeah, and, she, and that's what they got her on. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the French. So the French got her for heresy. and uh, But apparently at first they said if she agreed, she actually recounted, recanted, and they said if well, she agreed to wear ladies' clothing and, and to live peacefully, they would let her live. And so she agreed to this, but then the bishop visited her like two days or three days later and she was back in her trousers. So off to the fire she went. But there's also other evidence that she actually lived and married and um, lived to, to an old age. So who knows? It's, it's That's the whole point of it. People make up myths about things and hang stories on things and change them over time. And it's all very... Um, Things you think you know aren't necessarily so. Oh, righty ho. Oh, well. I'll just tell you one last thing. Robert Hood is apparently a Yorkshire boy. <laughs> oh, no, you've done it now. That's it. Right, until next time, everyone. Happy, Happy reading. reading. Gosh, you've ruined everything. It's my role in life. <laughs> The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.